Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, we do have Bibles available. We have little paperback Bibles uh, under the chairs in front of you, so you can reach forward and grab one of those, and our passage is on page uh, 499 in the paperback Bibles. As Andrew mentioned, I'll be starting a new sermon series in January, on January 14, on the book of 1 John. It's been a little while since we've gone through uh, a book of the Bible, so we're going to start at the beginning of that book, and God willing, just work our way uh, through that New Testament epistle. Next Sunday, that'll be uh, December 31st, Andrew Brown, our youth director, will be uh, preaching here. And then the Sunday after that, January 7, that's the weekend before the 1 John series starts, I'll be... Uh, delivering a sermon that I've not given here before. It's going to be kind of a state of the church address uh, as we look ahead to the new year. And so I'm going to take some time that morning uh, with the help of the elders, and of course we'll look uh, through the scriptures and just kind of give an assessment of how things are going here in New Life and where, God willing, that we're headed in the future. So that'll be Sunday, January 7th, before the First John series begins on January 14th. Well, uh, here it is, the great Christmas movie, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, yes, we have already watched that movie this year, uh, just this past week. Maybe some of you have seen it, very typically is played repeatedly during the Christmas season. I haven't noticed it on TV yet myself. I rented it, it was actually available at Family Video in Muncie and was able to get it and watch it and was reminded of what a wonderful and great movie this is. This is one of my very favorite movies of all time. Some of you might be sick and tired of it because you've seen it so many times. Uh, I've seen it multiple times and find that the movie rewards with repeated <coughs> with repeated viewings. I just find that uh, it's always just such an inspirational, powerful, heartwarming, gripping story. And one of the reasons why that's true is because It's a Wonderful Life is such a great story. It, it's such a powerful story. And all really good stories have this ability to tap into certain longings and desires that we have. That's why we pay good money to see movies. That's why we read good books, because there is something in all of our hearts that longs for and connects to a great story. And great stories tend to have certain things in common. There's particular elements that generally are there that draw us to the story. So very often we love stories where we see good triumphing over evil. We love stories where we see um, a broken kind of down and out person redeemed and brought back from death, brought back to standing on his or her feet and making something of uh, his life. We we love stories where there's some kind of um, contact with the supernatural. Very often we're just drawn to stories that suggest that maybe we're not alone in the universe and there actually is somebody out there and all these elements are present in It's a Wonderful Life and in many other stories as well. There's a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien that many of you have heard of and read. He wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and um, Tolkien wrote an essay once where he talked about something that he calls secondary belief. 
He says primary belief is when we believe something that actually happened. Somebody tells you about an event in history and, and we agree and we believe that it happened. That's primary belief. But Tolkien talked about something called secondary belief and by that he meant the stories that we hear that we know are fiction but nonetheless touch on such eternal themes that we know there's something true about them. Even though the story itself didn't happen, we know It's a Wonderful Life is a fictional story. There never was a guy named, well, there probably has been a man named George Bailey who lived, but this was not an, a biography of a guy named George Bailey. This wasn't intended to be a historical story. It, it's a fictional account. And yet there's something about the story that is true. And that's what Tolkien meant by secondary belief. Even though the story didn't actually happen, it contains elements that at some level we know are true. Or at the very least, they contain elements that we long to be true. Or at the very least, certain elements that we know ought to be true. That good should triumph over evil. That there should be an opportunity for redemption. That we shouldn't be alone here in the universe all by ourselves. And so when Tolkien talked about this secondary belief, he meant there's something in these stories that ring true with us. Now, when we come to the Christmas story, that's the question that a lot of people ask. Is it true? Do we hear the Christmas story and believe in it in a secondary way? Like, uh, yeah, you know, it would be nice if these things were true and we're drawn to these themes in it, but everybody knows that it didn't really happen. I mean, that's the way the world thinks. But as Christians, we don't think of the Christian story in that way, do we? Uh, we're believing that this is something that actually happened, and that better be true, because if the Christmas story is not true, then there is really nothing for us to be happy about tonight and tomorrow morning. I mean, if this isn't true, what are we celebrating? Because if this isn't true, that means there is no hope of redemption, we are alone in the universe, and evil in the end wins. What a bleak outlook on life that would be. But if this is true, if the Christmas story is true, friends, this is the greatest story ever told. If it's true, we ought to be the happiest people on earth. We ought to be awaking every day, rejoicing, our hearts full of joy, because this story that taps into all of our deepest longings actually happened. Fact is, a lot of Christians say they believe in the Christmas story, but they believe or they act as if it's not true. And I wonder if that's you today. You say you believe it at one level, but does your life reflect it? Do you believe this story is true or not? Well, let's take a look at this passage in Luke chapter 1. Basically what we're doing is continuing um, our sermon series on the mothers of Jesus. We've been looking at this through all of Advent, looking at the various important mothers in the line of Jesus. And so uh, today, of course, Christmas Eve, we finish with the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we're going to read a passage here that's called the Annunciation. This is the angel Gabriel. He's coming and he's announcing to Mary that she's going to give birth to this child. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 26 to 35. If you please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 1, 26 to 35. 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. God, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit we just read about, would come among us today and give us new insight into your word, new hope in the gospel, and assurance that the gospel is true. Do that among us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One thing that you'll notice when you begin to read a story is the way the story opens. And sometimes you'll look at a story and the very first phrase will be once upon a time. And when you see that, you know that the story you're about to read is not true. Right? That's always a phrase that introduces some kind of a a fairy tale. Uh, So how does Luke begin his story? We just read verses 26 to 35. We're in chapter 1. But how does Luke actually begin this gospel? Before we get into this text, I want to show you this. The first four verses of Luke chapter 1 say this. Luke is writing, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers to the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now that's very different than once upon a time, isn't it? What Luke is saying here is he's writing to this guy named Theophilus, a ruler uh, in, in his day, and what Luke is saying is, I have followed these things closely, these things that have happened surrounding the, 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 the life, death, and resurrection of this person named Jesus. I've been watching these things, and I've been talking to the eyewitnesses, the people who saw Jesus, and they saw him resurrected from the dead, and I've been listening to them, and what I'm wanting to do is write an orderly account for you. I'm going to write these things down, what has happened here, so that, Theophilus, you can have certainty about what has happened, so that you can know that these things are true. That's how Luke opens the gospel. Not once upon a time, but there are things that happen, and I'm investigating them carefully so that you can know exactly what happened. And so that's what we got to keep in mind as we read the things we're going to read here about the greatest story ever told, because there are just amazing things happening here in this story. Why is this story so great? Well, there's three reasons. 
Let's look at these, keeping in mind what we just heard from Luke. First of all, it's a miraculous story. Remember I said that we tend to have a longing for something, contact with the supernatural. We love stories with some kind of miraculous event. Well, that's the case in the gospel story. So the main character here in the story is Mary. Uh, And again, she's being addressed by this angel named Gabriel. And we're told in verse 26 that Mary is from a town called Nazareth, kind of an unremarkable town. And we learn that she is betrothed in verse 27 to a man named Joseph. Now, to be betrothed is not to be married, but it's a little stronger than being engaged. It was very significant to break off uh, a a betrothed relationship. It was something like a divorce. Um, So stronger than an engagement, but not yet married. And then we see in verse 27 that this woman, Mary, is a virgin. And in fact, that's repeated twice. A virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, that's not that big of a deal to learn about uh, a woman who is a virgin, but it is a big deal when the virgin is told that she's going to have a baby. And Maybe even then you say, well, it's not that big of a deal. She'll get married and she'll have a baby. But the implication here is that Mary is going to have this baby before she's married and while she's a virgin. I mean, how do we know that? Because if you look at verse 34, as Mary is responding to what the angel is saying, Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, she wouldn't ask that question if she expected that she would get married to Joseph and then they would have relations and have a child. Clearly, what Mary is understanding here is that there is a promise that she's going to have a baby before she's married, before she's had relations, and while she is a virgin. Now, that would be a miracle, wouldn't it? And this is what we call, as Christians, the virgin birth. It's very important to our belief system that a pregnancy will occur in Mary with no sexual activity taking place between her and a man. She's going to have no relations, she's a virgin, and yet she's going to be pregnant. That's what the promise is here. Now, how is this going to happen? And, of course, that's what Mary is asking. How can this be in verse 34? And so the answer um, is this. In verse 35, the, Holy, uh, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, this is a mysterious phrase. Not much detail is given about exactly what's happening here. We should not read this as some kind of sexual activity between God and and Mary. That's not what's happening here. Um, When I was in China a couple of years ago, we were able to go to a Muslim mosque in a a city, and there was um, an imam who came out and began to talk to us immediately and began to try to persuade us of the truth of Islam. And the imam kept pointing this out, that, that, that God cannot have sex with a woman. And so that's the way he understood this passage, and he thought that this is what made Christianity false. But that's not what's being said here. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, it says. 
That's something different. It's a very delicate and kind of gentle phrase that somehow, in a miraculous way, the Holy Spirit is going to intervene in the womb of Mary and cause her to be pregnant with a child. And that's all we're told. And what we're asked to believe here is that this is a miraculous claim in the scriptures that God who created the heavens and the earth is able to do all that he wishes to do and in this case he is going to make a virgin woman pregnant with child. Now you might say, well why is this so important? And you've probably heard of the virgin birth before. What's, what's the big deal? Do we have to believe in this? Well, it would seem that it's pretty important. If you look at verse 35, Again, look, it says, The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, look at that word, therefore. It seems like that's, that's a very important word because that word is linking the phrase that comes before with the phrase that comes after. The phrase that comes after says, The child to be born will call, be called holy, the Son of God. This child will be the son of God. But what allows the child to be the son of God is the fact that this child is born of a virgin. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Therefore, that's what lays the foundation for the child to be born to you to actually be the Messiah. So if there is not a virgin birth, you don't have a Messiah. You don't have a qualified Savior. That's the implication here. So yeah, the virgin birth is... Very important. It's what's being taught here in Luke. Some people say, well, it's not taught in many other places in the Bible. Well, that's irrelevant, really. It's taught right here. And that should be enough. You might think, well, why is this necessary? Well, let's just think about this. We could talk for a long time about this, but look, if the Savior has no human parent, wouldn't it make sense that that Savior could not be human? But if the Savior has two human parents, Joseph and Mary, for instance, wouldn't we wonder how that Savior could be divine? But what happens if there's a human being, Mary, and there's a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, the divine, who can come together and give us a Savior named Jesus, who is God as man, the Word made flesh? A Savior who was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. That's what we need is a Savior. We've got to have someone who represents us as a human race. It's the human race that's messed up. We're the ones that screwed everything up. We're the ones who are broken. We're the ones under the condemnation of God. We need someone to step in for us as our representative. We need a man, a human being. But we also need someone who's God because we need to be saved we need to be saved from our sins and from the condemnation of God. We need resurrection from the dead. We need everything to be fixed because everything is broken. And the only one who can do that is God. And so we need a Savior who's man and God and the virgin birth allows this to happen. See, here's what's going on here. You know, with an ordinary birth, when a woman gives birth to a child, you have, you have the beginning of a new life, right? You have a, a new person who is beginning his or her existence in a normal birth. But that's not really what's happening with the virgin birth. Jesus isn't beginning his existence when he's born. This is something different. What we have is God who exists as the second person of the Trinity, the, the word who was God and was with God, for all eternity, we have one who has always existed coming into 
our existence in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing here. God himself existing eternally, coming into our existence, beginning his life as a man, but not beginning his life because he's existed for all eternity. It's like God making an appearance in his story. As some of you know about Alfred, 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 Hitch, Alfred Hitchcock, and, and maybe you know on Alfred Hitchcock's movies, he had this habit of always making an appearance in his movies. And if you look really carefully, very often it's very easy to miss. It'll just be a cameo, and he might be in the background somewhere. And it's like, there he is. There's Alfred Hitchcock. And there's his one appearance in the movie. He, he would do that repeatedly as just kind of an interesting gimmick to show up in his movies. And that's kind of what Christmas is about. It's God showing up in his story. It's his story. He's written it, and he's entering into it. But not merely as a cameo, friends, as the star of the show in the person of Jesus Christ. Some people say, you know, I, I would believe in God if only he would show himself to me. Why doesn't God just come down and reveal himself to me? Have you heard people say that? Maybe you've said that. Maybe you're saying that today. Don't you see? That's what Christmas is about. God coming down and showing himself to you in the person of Jesus Christ through this miraculous event called the virgin birth. Well, we see something else here. It's not just a miraculous story. It's a victorious story too. It's a story of a great victory. We have the angel here speaking to Mary. And um, <clears throat> we see in verse 28 and following that Mary responds with a certain amount of, of fear. Uh, it says she was troubled. The angel says, don't be afraid. So Mary's af is, is afraid speaking to this angel. So um, this angel must be different than Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life. Right? Remember Clarence? This kind of goofy, stumbling, kind of lovable guy. I mean, there's nothing scary about Clarence, is there? But apparently the angels in the Bible are, are a little different, a little more majestic, a little more intimidating. Uh, Zechariah had the same experience when the angel came to talk to him. It says he was scared too. And any of you would be scared if an angel came and appeared to you. So that's the case here with Mary. But it seems a, a big part of what is kind of scaring Mary is what the angel is saying. And so the angel's making these unbelievable pronouncements to Mary about this child that uh, she's going to give birth to. And so let, let's look at this. What does the angel say about this child? Starting here in verse 32, it says, He will be great. He will be great. Now, that deserves a little explaining, doesn't it? Because great is probably the most overused word in the English language. It's like calling somebody nice. You know? He's a nice guy. I mean, what does that mean? Is that a compliment or not? I don't know. It's that word is used so often, and the word great is used so often. Yeah, that's great. Oh, it would be great if you did that. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that dinner great? Wasn't that game great? We use it over and over again. What does it mean to say that Jesus is great. Well, to put this in perspective, um, let, let me phrase it this way. John Piper has, has come up with this example. Let, let's say you had every single brilliant person uh, in history. You, you could get Plato and Michelangelo and uh, Winston Churchill and Isaac Newton 
and uh, Albert Einstein, and you could get all the great people in the world and put them in a room with Jesus. And do you know that every one of those great people will be standing before Jesus with their mouths shut, listening and learning from Jesus. In fact, they probably will be bowed down on their knees before him. That's how great Jesus is. That's one way of looking at this. That's the promise here that's made. This is going to be a great savior, but he's not just great. It says he's going to be the son of the most high, it says also in verse 32. Son of the most high. The most high is a phrase used to describe Yahweh in the Old Testament uh, in many cases. And so the promise here is that Jesus is going to be son of God, son of the most high. And it could be that what the angel is doing here is trying to set Jesus apart from John the Baptist. Because remember, John has come before and he has prepared the way for Jesus. But John the Baptist is not son of the most high. And in fact, John the Baptist says, I'm not even worth, it's not even worth it for me to, to, to bend down and untie the man's sandals. I mean, that's how great he is compared to me. So I think the angel here is, one thing he's doing is trying to exalt Jesus as one who is much greater than John the Baptist. He is son of the most high. And then he goes on and he says that not only is he son of the most high, but he, um, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now, th this sets up a nice interesting review of this whole sermon series actually these next couple of phrases this mothers of jesus sermon series so if you haven't been here for the last few weeks bear with us here but look what he's saying here he'll be um he'll receive the throne of his father david remember last week we learned about david right uh we learned about how david's great failure in his adultery with bathsheba was used by god for for great purposes and so we don't see the name of Bathsheba mentioned here, but we do see that the angel is promising that this son, this Messiah, is going to be a descendant of David. And after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and that child died, the text goes on to say that David and Bathsheba came together again and they had another child, and that child's name was Solomon. And Solomon is in the line of Jesus. And so we see a reference to this right here. He is the descendant of David. He is the son of David. And we don't see Bathsheba mentioned, but it takes a, a woman to have a baby with David, and that woman was Bathsheba that continued the line of Jesus. So we're reminded here of Bathsheba as the mother of Jesus. But then it goes on, and it says that in verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Well, who is Jacob? Remember two Sundays ago, we heard about believing the unbelievable, because we learned about Abraham and Sarah and a promise was made to them that they were going to have a child even though they were old and Sarah was barren. Abraham and Sarah had a child. That child's name was Isaac. And then Isaac and Rebekah had a child and that child's name was Jacob. And so what the, Gabriel, what the angel here is saying is that this Messiah is going to be a descendant of Abraham and Sarah. And so we have another reference to another mother of Jesus, Sarah. And then, lastly, we have this last phrase, and it says about Jesus that his kingdom will have no end. 
his kingdom will have no end. What that tells us is that Jesus is a king. He's inherited the throne, it says earlier. He is a king, and he is a king who will have victory over all of his enemies. That's why his kingdom will never end. And included among his enemies is the greatest enemy of all, Satan. This is the Messiah, the descendant who was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, who was going to come and crush the head of the serpent, who was going to defeat and destroy Satan. And that was the first sermon in this series. Jesus, the son of David and Bathsheba, the son of David and Sarah, and even the son of Eve, the descendant who was promised to come to defeat Satan. This picture um, is such a wonderful depiction of the truth of Christmas. How many have you guys seen this? Have you seen this, this picture? J- just a few of you. Um, you see on the, uh, my little pointer's not working here. On the left, of course, uh, that's Eve. And on the right, that's Mary. You notice Eve is a bit despondent because she was the one that ate the fruit, which she's holding in her hand. And as a result of her sin and Adam's sin, death and evil and despair were brought into the world. And so Eve in her sadness is now looking to Mary. And Mary has got a little bit of a smile on her face. And she's bringing comfort to Eve and holding her hand and taking Eve's hand and placing it on her belly and implying that the descendant that was promised to you, Eve, who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent right here in my belly, right here in my womb. And as that baby is born, what's going to happen is the serpent will be crushed. I don't know if you can see it, but here on the bottom of the picture, uh, Mary's foot is on the head of the serpent. Well, Mary isn't going to crush the serpent, so the picture's a little misleading there. Jesus is the one who's going to do that. But um, what, what a beautiful picture of two of the very important mothers of Jesus. This Messiah, this king who is going to come and overcome evil and defeat everything wrong and make everything right. Friends, as Christians, we look at the world and we hear the news, we get so discouraged, we get so depressed at all the bad things that are happening. Listen, a Christian has no reason to look at the news and be despairing. You need to repent of that because we know the final outcome. We know that Jesus is victorious. We know that the, the, the serpent is going to be crushed, that Satan is going to be destroyed. We know who wins in the end. So don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters. Jesus wins, and that means we win. We might have to wait, but it's going to happen. Uh, another reference to It's a Wonderful Life. Remember the symbol of evil in It's a Wonderful Life, Mr. Potter. Right? He was this kind of evil banker and he was the arch nemesis of George Bailey and just kind of the, the, the cause of everything bad and evil um, in, uh, in the movie. And Frank Capra, who directed the movie, was talking about Mr. Potter and pointed out that, and I don't know if you've noticed this, I never did, but Mr. Potter never really gets punished in the movie. I mean, he kind of gets away with it. And Frank Capper, the director, said he received more letters of complaint about that than anything else. 
that it bothered people that the, that the symbol of evil in the movie never got his, never got punished. But see, that's not the case in the gospel story. The bad guy gets caught. The serpent gets crushed. Satan gets destroyed. It's a victorious story that we're all longing to see and to hear. Last thing, it's also a redemptive story. The Christmas story is a redemptive story. Now, when we give names to our children in this particular culture, we don't often pour a lot of meaning into those names. I mean, some of you maybe have, but broadly speaking, we, we generally don't name people because the name means something that's important to us about the person, but that's exactly what was the case in Jewish culture. Names were given for very specific and meaningful purposes. And in verse 31, we see Gabriel telling Mary what she's going to name her child. So Mary and Joseph don't get the freedom to name the child whatever they want. They receive the command from Gabriel. And it says this in verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Now, why is that name significant? Because the word Jesus actually comes from the Hebrew, which means Joshua. And the word Joshua means he will save. He will save. That's the significant element that Gabriel wants Mary to know about her child. This is going to be a child who's going to grow up to save people. Like, in what way? I mean, is it like Joshua in, like, military conquest? Is this going to be a military hero? No. Because we get more information about this in Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew tells us this, same thing, the angel speaking to Mary, and the angel says this, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the salvation that this Savior is going to offer. Redemption, salvation from your sins. That's what you need more than anything. You need to know that God's wrath and anger are not hanging over your head. You need to know that your sins can be washed away. It's the most important thing for any person to have assurance of in this life. And that's what Jesus came to do. So how can you know this? How can you know that your sins are, are forgiven? It's not just by hearing the story. It's by responding to the story, friends. You have to respond to the story that you're hearing. Probably my favorite scene in the movie It's a Wonderful Life is when George Bailey is there on the bridge and he's thinking about uh, throwing himself over and it's actually near the end of the movie when he kind of comes, the movie comes back to him on the bridge. And he's absolutely broken. He's totally at the end of himself. There, there's like nothing that he can do to fix his situation. And there's that scene where he's leaning over the guardrail and he prays to God. And he says, God, I want to live. God, let me live. What a beautiful cry of redemption. Cry for redemption. That's, that's the proper way to respond to the story that you're hearing. To go to God and say, God, I want to live. In fact, I want to live for you. I, I want to live for Jesus. 
And I, I thank you that you have sent a savior into this world who is fully qualified to represent me, but one who is powerful enough to save me. And I acknowledge, God, I have sinned against you. I have been living as if you don't even exist. I have ignored you. I have rebelled against you. And I am sorry. And I confess these sins. And I make no excuses for them. But I want to live. And I want Jesus as my Savior. And I want forgiveness. Would you please do that, God? Forgive me. That's the kind of prayer you could offer. A prayer very simple, uh, very uh, similar to the one that George Bailey offered and the promise of the scripture is that God saves all those who cry out to him. Would you do that if you haven't? Would you offer that prayer today, now? Do you want to live? J.R.R. Tolkien had a really good friend. That friend's name was C.S. Lewis. Most of you have heard of Lewis, Tolkien and Lewis had a lot of conversations together. They were both teachers at Oxford University in, uh, in England. And um, they would talk about theological things quite a bit. And there was uh, a time during their friendship when Tolkien was a Christian and Lewis was still an atheist. And so they would talk about these matters often. And there was a conversation that these two guys had on October 1st, 1931. And the reason the date is remembered is because C.S. Lewis counts it a major turning point in his life. And the conversation resolved around stories, or what Lewis would call myths, all the great myths in history. And Lewis loved these myths, and so did Tolkien. Uh, all these ancient myths, that they both had this affection for him, but Lewis, believing them all to be merely fiction, said, they're all lies. And Tolkien responded and said, not really. And, and that's when he kind of started talking about this secondary belief idea. But what Tolkien said to Lewis on that day, he said, listen, Jack, I'm assuming that's what he called him, that was C.S. Lewis's nickname. Listen, Jack, all that we love about the great stories, and all that you love, Jack, about the great stories, are all found in the gospel. The gospel is not just one among many stories. It is the story to which all other stories point. It is the story that is the fundamental underlying meaning of all reality. It is the story that triumphs and ascends above them all. And Tolkien said this, he, he said, he said all of all the tales that are told to men throughout history, the one that people most want to be true is the story of Jesus. And isn't that true? That, that's what that's what we all want. We want to know that we're loved. We want to know we can be redeemed. We want to know that life triumphs over death. We want to know that evil doesn't get the last word. And the gospel says that's exactly what Jesus has secured for us. I'm here to tell you, friends, as Luke is telling us in the gospel, that the greatest story ever told is true. It really happened. 
on a primary level. And the call to you is to respond in faith and to submit to this King Jesus and receive him as your Savior and Lord. And you know what? That's exactly what happened to C.S. Lewis. He was writing a letter to somebody else later on, and he was talking about that conversation he had with Tolkien. And, uh, and he said, you know what? I think I just passed from being a believer in God to being a believer in Christ. I think I just became a Christian because of what he came to understand about the story, the Christmas story, and how it is the story to which all other stories point. That's what we're celebrating here uh, tonight. That's what we're celebrating tomorrow. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we have hope. The greatest story ever told is true. What good news.